Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Those are good words to take to heart this morning. And I love that psalm which talks about the sovereignty of God over the nations. We live in an unsettled time and so much that is happening that can unnerve us. But we need to remember that Jesus is the king and he rules this earth. And so take heart, uh, my friends. And uh, this morning we're going to, to talk about God's power expressed in the founding of our country. So uh, if you're able to download the note sheet, uh, go ahead and have that at the ready as we talk about history. Now, I get it. History is one of those things that people love or hate. There's really not a middle ground when it comes to history. But, but even if you're one of those that, uh, that, that doesn't really get a lot out of history, I think you'd agree with me that it's important to have some knowledge of it because there's consequences if you don't. Those of you that are married should have a, a, an understanding of the history of when you were married. Wouldn't you agree? That'd be a good safety, uh, a point of safety to, to know that. Yes. So that's important. Uh, I just had a birthday. Uh, I'm now solidly in my 50s. And I've been told that there are these fun medical procedures that one ought to have when you're my age. And it seems to me you ought to have a, a, an appreciation of the history of when you had those procedures. Because, you know, you never want to have so much, too much fun in your life uh, as I think about it. Things went great for the Hebrews in Egypt. Uh, living in Egypt there in the days of Joseph, if you remember that story. But then the Bible says a generation arose that knew not Joseph, and things soured in a hurry for the Hebrews. That's what happens when we forget our history. And we are living in a time right now when many Americans are forgetting their history, their history of, of George. We have a generation arising that knows not George or Thomas or Abraham or Benjamin. And there are consequences for this, and we're seeing some of them play out right before us uh, these days. As American citizens, uh, there's another part of uh, our history that we are in the process of forgetting today, which concerns the, the role of Christianity in the founding of our nation. It's a history that's not taught in schools anymore. In fact, it's being relentlessly erased and in fact, uh, followers of Christ increasingly are being made to feel marginalized in our, in our society today. If you speak out on a matter of moral concern today, and it, it's found out that your opinion comes from your faith or the Bible or, or tradition, at once what you have to say is declare, declared irrelevant to the discussion. The moment you mention God or the Bible or faith, you're, you're told, oh, sorry, you're disqualified. Separation of church and state, you know. Thanks for playing. That's how it works today. But it always it hasn't always been this way. When this nation was first founded, most of the people who built it up from the soil up, who created our first cities and founded our first colleges, who fought for our freedom and created from scratch this remarkable system of government that we enjoy today, most of these were men and women of robust faith, and most of these were hewn from the rock of biblical Christianity. And in fact, you know what? The ones who uh, did not believe in God, or openly said that, those are the ones who were thinking, uh, thought of as, as knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. In fact, in the courts, according to a, a French historian named Tocqueville, in some American courts, if you said that you were an atheist, your testimony was thrown out, because how could you possibly believe the word of someone who is accountable only to himself? That's how much we've changed today. So this morning, what I'd like to do is give us a few examples of how some of the great heroes who founded this country were shaped 
by their belief in God, and in particular, the Christian God. Some of you watching this morning are, are living lives of such desperation and emptiness. And uh, one of the reasons that might be happening is because you've kept the God who created you at arm's length. You weren't made to live that way. There is a God, and you're not him. And in fact, you need him. And many of the founders of our country believe this. And let's start with the, the, uh, the founder, uh, the father of our country himself, George Washington. If you've got a, a dollar bill somewhere nearby, pull it out and take a look at, uh, at his face. It's instantly recognizable. How much do we know about him, though, that hasn't already slipped into legend or myth? He was a real flesh and blood human being. And when he was 11 years old, his father died, and, and, and George was not given the opportunity his two older brothers had of being sent to London to receive a classical education. Today, uh, he would have raged and protested at how unfair it was, that, that he had a right to this or that, and the world owed him this or that. But you know what he did instead? He focused not on what he didn't have, but he focused on what he had. And he went to work setting himself uh, to advance on a path of self-learning and study. He read as much as he could. And in particular, uh, George Washington work, went to work on becoming not just a, an intelligent man or a wealthy man. He wanted to be a good man. When he was young, he and his family went to the Anglican church in their community. And Washington would be faithful throughout his days in serving and attending his church. At the age of 16, Washington did something interesting. He wrote out by hand, a bestseller of his time, 110 Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior. It was written in the 16th century by uh, Christian Jesuits. So rule number one, for example, read this. Each action done in company ought to be done with some sign of respect to those who are present. That's rule number one. Rule number 28, if anyone comes to speak to you while you are sitting, stand up as though he be your, uh, stand up though he be your inferior. Well, that's a good rule to follow, to treat with respect all those that are in the room with you. Rule number 49, use no reproachful language against anyone, neither curse nor revile. Washington went through all 110 rules. Wrote them out by hand. And, and I think today, you'd agree with me, I'm sure most of you, that we could use some detailed instruction in manners training today. huh? Now, I've read through these rules, and in fact, we're going to post them to our website this week. Uh, you might find them interesting to read. Some are dated. Rule number 13, kill no vermin, fleas, lice, or ticks in the sight of others. I hate it when people do that in front of me. How about you? But I think every 16-year-old, should be required to write these rules out and to learn them, just as Washington did. In fact, I think our politicians in D.C. today should write these rules out. Washington took his moral education to, to heart, and it shaped the man that he would become. Hundreds who knew him in his adulthood marveled at what a man of natural in integrity and dignity and honor he was. Thomas Jefferson said of him, he was indeed, in every sense of the word, a wise, a good and great man. Washington carried in his coat pocket, and we mentioned this in our quiz as we started this morning, a copy of the book of Psalms, which he read through faithfully and almost daily, uh, which is interesting in light of our psalm study this summer. To Washington, the Psalms spoke of a God who acted in history on behalf of his people. It was an attribute of God known as, as God's providence and and 
Washington used this, this vocabulary, this word a lot when he referred to God in his speeches. And why wouldn't he speak this way when you consider all that he witnessed in his life? It was to God that Washington and his friends appealed in their great struggle. The Declaration of Independence begins with these words. Many of you know them. You should know them. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration begins with God. It also ends with God. Its final sentence, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. A little over a month after Washington and his friends released to the nation and to the world these words, the declaration, Washington and his Continental Army witnessed God's protection firsthand. The British were driven out of Boston easy enough. Actually, it was more a tactical retreat on, on their part. Uh, the British, after regrouping, redoubled their forces with the help of foreign mercenaries. And then the British Army sailed its force into New York City. And before you could say, USA, USA, they had the colonial army, army pinned and back on its heels in Brooklyn Heights. All the British Army had to do was sail a few ships up the Hudson River, position its armies, spring the trap, and the war would have been over before it began. The only thing that was preventing that was a stretch of nasty weather, complete with a, a stiff northeast wind that was keeping the ships from sailing up the river. Hopelessly outgunned and, and outmanned, Washington had only one escape, to evacuate his, his army across the river and live to fight another day. But any attempt at... Escaping would likely be seen by the British, who at once would launch their attack. Unless the British couldn't see the Continental Army escaping. On the night of August 29, 1776, Washington ordered a retreat across the Hudson. Despite the bad weather, he had no choice. It was now or never. Author David McCulloch, in his bestseller, 1776, writes this. It was about 11 o'clock when, as if by design, the northeast wind died down. From then on that night, boats began to cross and recross the Hudson, ferrying soldiers and supplies to the other side. But they couldn't do it fast enough. Though nearly morning, a large part of the army still waited to embark, McCulloch writes. Without the curtain of night to conceal them, their escape was doomed. Incredibly, yet again, circumstances, fate, luck, providence, the hand of God, as would be said so often, intervene. Just at daybreak, a heavy fog settled in over the whole of Brooklyn, concealing everything no less than had the night. Even with the sun up, the fog remained as dense as ever, while over on the New York side of the river, there was no fog at all. 9,000 soldiers came across the river that night, and the last one across, according to the commander of the final regiment, was George Washington. Disaster was averted. The army lived to fight. Was that a coincidence? We'll never know till we get to heaven. But Washington felt certain of what was happening. In his first inaugural address as president, Washington said this, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to becoming an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token 
a providential agency. It's often said of the Founding Fathers that they were deists. Perhaps you've heard that word. A deist is someone who believes that God created the world, but then he left it to run on its own. Kind of like a watchmaker creates a watch, winds it up, and then, and then, then leaves it. And that's how the deists tended to think about a God. They did not believe in the personal in intervention of God in history. Now, you just read Washington's uh, own words. Does that sound like a deist to you? Even for those among our founders that clearly were deists, like Benjamin Franklin, the idea of a passive, distant, uninvolved deity was not a mindset that they could long sustain in light of all that they experienced in those years. Several years after the war was won, our young nation was about to come apart at the seams because of the fragile form of government they had set up in place. These articles of confederation, if you recall. It had to be replaced or the country would fragment. Well, there was a critical point in the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Delegates' tempers were, were starting to flare. Disagreements were rife. It looked like at any moment the whole thing was going to collapse. Until wise old Benjamin Franklin, the deist, stood up and addressed the assembly. And he called for the council to pray. Here are his words. He said this, In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of, of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard. And they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, Benjamin Franklin said. And while his motion was more or less tabled, so frayed were the conditions in the room at that time, his calming words helped the delegates to catch a second wind, and it wasn't long after that before the, the uh, remarkable Constitution was completed, ready to be sent to the states. What about Thomas Jefferson? Now, he, of all the founders, was clearly a convinced deist. In fact, he said of himself, I am a sect all by myself, as far as I know. Did you know that Jefferson went through the New Testament with a pair of scissors, and he literally cut out from the New Testament all the parts he didn't agree with and just, just threw them on the floor? Well, of course he would do this. Though he was a brilliant philosopher and writer and politician, and thank goodness for Thomas Jefferson, man, he played fast and loose with his moral life. And I'd cut things out of the Bible, too, you know, if it was convicting me of things that I didn't want to change. People do that all the time. That's human nature. We either change our behavior and align it with the will of God, or we change our God. Jefferson's critique of religion, though, was not all bad, however. He hated hypocrisy when he saw it. And he hated the way the different denominations in his time were, were quarreling and, and fighting over petty points of doctrine. It was Jefferson who first coined a phrase I know many of you are familiar with. Separation, church and state. What do you mean by this, though? Today we're told by many politicians and people in the media that separation of church and state means you Christians be quiet and stay in your building. Hmm? But this is not what the Founding Fathers meant. You know what they were concerned about? They were concerned with the government 
telling religious people how they should worship and what they should believe. They were concerned with the government taking tax dollars from, from, from people and, and giving them to one particular church, favoring one over the other. Or to give a modern example, about they were concerned about a government telling a church, well, we know you believe this about abortion or marriage or gender, but we demand that you think like us or we're coming after you. That separation in church and state, it was drawn up. You know what they were not concerned about, our founders? They were not concerned with people of faith going out in the public and, and teaching morals and doctrines and beliefs to others. They weren't offended by the thought of prayers being offered in public schools or the Bible being taught in schools. In fact, they wanted it to happen. Now, they didn't want Baptist or Congregational or Catholic doctrine being taught and proselytizing going on in schools. The place for that is the public square. But the Bible is filled with essential history that we need to know. History that has shaped the very foundations of our Western civilization. It's filled with some of the most beautiful poetry that human language is capable of. The Bible is filled with moral lessons of, of, of life that will only make us better should we learn it. And so our founders, they wanted people saying in, in courts, so help me God. And they wanted federal property to be available for religious groups should they desire to rent the space. They'd have no problem with a manger scene being displayed in front of City Hall. They wanted faith to be unleashed. And why? There was a strategic reason for this. Because faith, by and large, makes people better. The belief in God is good for us because ordinarily... It brings good out of us. Oh, sure, you got your cook, your kooks, and your wackos, and your terrorists. But that's the exception. The norm is that faith brings dig dignity and honor and goodness out of a person. And here's the rub, as far as our, our founders were concerned. In a democracy, where people are going to be free to do whatever they want, well, <laughs> who do you want more of? You want selfish people or generous people? Do you want thieves or, or people that respect property. Not lazy people or responsible people. Our founding fathers argued only if we remain a moral people will we remain a free people. And what is going to produce more moral people? The founding fathers unashamedly public said, publicly said, faith in God. In his farewell address to the nation, Washington said these famous words. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. John Adams, our second president, said, without religion, this world would be something not fit to be mentioned in polite company. Publicly, our, our founding fathers pointed people to embrace faith in God in a generic sense. Privately, they would say, and we see this in many of their writings, embrace faith in the God of the Christian Bible, the religion of Jesus Christ. George Washington did not speak publicly the name of Christ at all. He was very guarded in his language, very intentional and respectful of the fact that he was the president of a nation of many different faiths. But he did say this to a, a tribe of, Del of Delaware Indian chiefs on, on one occasion with these words. He said, you would do well to learn our arts and our ways of life and above all the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. 
As a Christian pastor who's been striving to follow Christ most of his life, I have learned that people, most people who do in fact worship Christ and walk with him and serve him, most of them do end up as the founders hoped. Not perfect. Only Jesus was that. But certainly a lot further down the road to life, liberty, and happiness than they would have been otherwise. I don't need to look any further than my own life. If I didn't have Christ in my life, if my mind wasn't soaking up Scripture, if inside my heart were not the highways to Zion, if I wasn't surrounded by, by God's people, man, I, I tremble to think about what I would be like. And I'm absolutely convinced that what our nation needs now and what you need now, if you're listening to me, is to return to the faith of our founders. How do we do this? I want to be very practical as we close this morning. There's a great sermon that Paul preached in our Bibles. It's in Acts chapter 17. If you've got your Bibles nearby, turn there now. Acts 17, where Paul in this sermon, interestingly, talks about how God raises up nations and the reason why he does that and how he controls that. Echoes of the psalm that we read earlier. And in the sermon, Paul explains how it is that a country or a person can return to God. First, Paul says in Acts 17, 26, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So the first thing we've got to do, my friends, is admit that God exists and that I need him. And you don't have to take it all on faith either. Our founders didn't. These were the most reasonable intelligent men of their age they arose in a time called the enlightenment when everyone was taught to think things through there was a motto in their times i think therefore i am hmm? the bible says things similar to that come let us reason together god said through isaiah and, and my friends you clear away the rubble and the fog in your mind i know that you know that there is a god but reason is never enough by itself at some point Faith also is required. Reason will bring you to faith's door, but at some point you must choose to walk through. The correct formula is not, I think, therefore I am. The correct formula is, I think and believe, therefore I am. And that's, what, that's what's required of you today if you want to change your life for the better. In faith, admit that God exists, that he's already been at work in your life, and you need him. But, know this, God will not force you to make this choice either. After telling us that God raised up every nation, look what Paul says next. God raised up these nations that they, the human race, should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And so having admitted that God is there, we, we next have to seek him. You have to reach out to him. You have to cry out to him. God wants sons and daughters, not slaves. Christianity is all about freedom. I want you to notice what Paul is not saying in this sermon. He's not saying that, that God directly brings about everything that happens and that we're all some kind, kind of puppet on a stage. No, that's, that's not it at all. It wasn't an angel from heaven that drove the British out of America. It was thousands of men and women who were struggling and suffering for liberty. God's providence works in, with, and under what we do. We are free to make choices. And we are responsible for our part in the drama of life. If, you're, if your life is in a bad place right now, don't blame God for it. Sure, there are things that, that we all experience that we have no control over. 
You didn't have control of your dad abusing you or, or leaving you or losing your job. The coronavirus, none of us can control. I get it. God gets it. Life is hard. But all along the way, we are allowed, allowed to make choices that will bring us closer to freedom or drive us further from it. Nor is this passage saying that, that everything that has happened in the birth of our nation has God's stamp of approval on it. There is so much that is, that is shameful about our nation's founding, our treatment of the Native Americans. Shameful. And of course, the greatest stain of sin upon this nation began to overspread our land right away when a Dutch slave trader sailed into Jamestown in 1619 and exchanged 20 African slaves for food. And we all know what happened next. Now, God's providence does not, does not mean America right or wrong. No. And when America went wrong, God saw to it that his blessing upon our land was, was removed. It would not continue. It took another president, four score and, and, and seven years after our nation's founding, to recognize that discipline is also a part of God's providence. And that discipline that God gives is meant to do one thing, to bring us back to him, to bring us to our knees, to repent. That's what Paul says next. Look at Acts 17, 29 and 30. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We admit that God is there and that you need him. We seek him with all our heart. And then when we find him, the third thing that we must do is repent Ask for his forgiveness. Reach out. Cry out for his mercy. Give him your life. Repent for getting all Thomas Jefferson with God the way we all do. For creating a God out of your own imagination. Going through and taking the parts of the Bible that you like and throwing out the rest. Repent of that. Accept God as he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And this nation needs to repent. There's so many sins on our hands and in our hearts and in our history. It's why I believe that this moment that we are in, dear ones, truly confronting the scourge of racism that's been a part of the DNA of our country from the beginning, this is a holy moment that we're in, which now we're trying to ruin with so much unholiness. Repentance is not something that you do with anger and shouting and violence and acting like you're so much better than everybody else that's around and then the arrogance to act like you're, you're so much better than everybody on the earth right now, but to act like you're so much better than everyone who has ever lived. As though you would have done differently had you lived with the founders. That you would have done better than they did. Or Abraham Lincoln, or Ulysses S. Grant, or Theodore Roosevelt. No, we're not better. Repentance takes place when your heart is broken. And humble. And when you realize that without God's grace and forgiveness. You'd be lost. And that the same sin that's in everyone else. Is in me. And you need Jesus. And you need his death on that cross. Just as everyone else does. Just as God overlooked ignorance in Paul's day. So he's, he's willing to do it today. To overlook our ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere. To repent. Including you and me. And what do we do next? Paul tells us in the sermon. We live for Jesus. Because Jesus is alive. 
Verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You want life? You want liberty? You want happiness? This is how you find them, my friend. Thank goodness 1619 is not the be-all and end-all of the American story. Thank goodness for 1776. It's because of 1776 that 1619 doesn't get to have the last laugh over us. It took a long time and it's taking time still to work its way out through us. But thank goodness for that. And thank goodness, my friends, for the cross of Jesus Christ. It is because of the cross where Jesus died that we know that the sin and evil that's in us won't get the last laugh either. Isn't that right? So my friend, take hold of Jesus. Give him your life. Never let go. And that's how you and I are going to learn what freedom really is.